Attention is centered squarely on health tech, with 2020 introducing the world to a number of existing technologies that really had yet to reach max penetration across the healthcare industry. So for those who have been seen as a niche part of the industry of healthcare for decades, they are now center stage. As large publicly traded telehealth firms see stocks rise and smaller specialized telemedicine players experience exponential growth, the need for adequate and powerful voices to support those operations are needed in state capitals around the country as well as Washington, D.C. So we're visiting with Nora Belcher, executive director of the Texas eHealth Alliance. And while much of this episode revolves around discussions of Texas-specific legislators and legislation, you'll see transferable trends that are relevant in other states around the country. We're going to address a couple of pet areas for me personally, too, in here, including what legislators missed in developing investments for EMRs, as well as what cyber risk trends legislators need to understand as hospitals around the country deal with a worldwide pandemic, as well as cyber thefts of vital health data that threaten the health of patients. I'm Lance Lunsford, senior partner at Groundswell Health, and you're listening to the Connected Hospital Podcast on the Touchpoint Health Network. Thanks for listening. All right, Nora. Thanks for jumping on to the podcast. I've, you, we've we've talked several times, and it's always really exhilarating. And and in your your excitement about all things healthcare and healthcare technology is infectious. But but tell me how you know you came into the the Texas E Health Alliance and 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 uh, what what it is that that you're you're focused on there now. Sure, uh, Lance. First of all, thank you so much for having me today. It's always fun to talk to you. Um, a little bit about myself. I'm a computer programmer with a political science degree, so I was pretty much always going to end up in health technology policy. That just seemed like an organic uh, sort of thing. When I started my career in the 90s, the technology policy was almost like a punishment assignment. Like telemedicine, ooh, what is that? Who's the youngest, most junior staffer in the room? Ah, Nora. Go work on the telemedicine thing. This was, you know, in the mid '90s when some of my colleagues didn't even type on a computer. And over time, as interest in these projects grew, what I saw the need for was a forum for companies and other organizations that are competitors in the marketplace to come together around the policies that impact health IT at the state level. Most vendors instinctively sort of think about uh, Washington. And they should, because a lot of the federal policy is really important. But even in the early days of the High Tech Act, when we were first giving out uh, stimulus money for electronic medical records and that sort of thing, state policy can have a huge impact on health technology adoption. And in a market like Texas, where uh, one in 12 Americans is currently a Texan and it will be one in 10 by 2040, that is a massive market that can either be accessible or not accessible based on what the legislature does. So we started the Alliance to have a companion trade association to the health plan association, the medical association, the hospital association to partner with those groups, but to give the uh, vendors a place to go to work on policy issues. So that was where we started. Um, with 12 companies in a very small room. We now have 100 organizations of all shapes and sizes. 
we've been, I think, really successful in moving the ball in terms of passing legislation around interoperability, around telemedicine. I think that's the thing we're the best known for, but certainly not the only thing that we do. Uh, feeling very popular these days. Yeah, I bet you are. Popular in the middle of the zombie apocalypse, you know, there you go. Um, But we are definitely going to talk about that for sure. Why you are so popular. It is, it is, it's, it's, it's an interesting time to be in the space. And so the last thing I think I'll say is it's a joy to represent the builders of the tools and the architects of the solutions because they have perspective that is maybe different from providers and different from health plans about how things get operationalized on the ground. And from a policy perspective, that's really valuable because it makes the theory tangible and it gives me really specific examples that I can testify about and take to legislators and say, these are the sorts of changes we're talking about. We take this technology, we put it here, we make an improvement. And to me, that's what it should be about, is improving the healthcare system, particularly for patients, but then obviously also for families and for providers. Well, and that puts you at the tip of the spear for what needs to be done over the next uh, 10 years when it comes specifically probably to to patient data and the investment in the foundation that we already have in place with uh, that was given to us through the the High Tech Act. And, And again, I've got a couple of questions there, but um, I think that gives us a good place to to jump in. So we have a couple of key areas that with coronavirus upon us and and even without it, um, where where you are, again, um, a a very relevant resource and um, kind of advocate uh, for for healthcare right now, not so much, not even just just, uh, specifically to technology, but uh, healthcare period, because so much of what is being done right now in in healthcare in terms of quote unquote innovation, and I'm going to use that bracketed term innovation, uh, requires us to not only use data, but do do some of this stuff better with the data that we have. So let's let's jump in there. We, we've got cybersecurity on our uh, radar, but I kind of want to take a, a step back and, and talk a little bit instead about you know, the, the role of the EMR right now and what what has happened over the last 10 years, because we had the Health Information Technology and Economic and Clinical Health Act, known as the High Tech Act, that was passed in 2009. And it kind of got um, put into that, that um, grouping. It kind of fell under the radar because of everything that happened with Obamacare. Um, so as a result, you have this huge investment going on in EMR that really needed to be done that wasn't going to be done without some sort of influx of government spending. The market, free market wasn't going to do it on its own. Um, but that created a couple of, of holes over the course of 10 years and from, from some rapid growing, growing pains that happened because of the rapidity of it. I'll get to a question eventually. But do you think that there's any way for the government to have done that kind of investment in something that needed to be done without there being two big holes in that, one being cybersecurity and one being um, the, the, the complexity of the rollout and the, the influx of demand that was going to be put on a very small set of EMR vendors? What a great question. I think the missing piece would have been, and this would have been harder, but the outcome would have been better if we'd also had an accelerated move to value-based purchasing. So I'll address cybersecurity in a second. 
But part of the reason for getting on the electronic medical records is not just for billing. And yes, they're billing tools. And yes, that makes everybody crazy. But, but one of the end goals was to improve the sharing of patient data. And that was really not happening in the, in the earlier part of this decade. And that's what caused in 2016 and the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act, the provisions for the trusted exchange framework. So we now have a default to sharing data as opposed to a default to hoarding data. And I think if we had had told the builders of the tools, by the way, your default to build will be to share because we're also gonna move quickly into value-based purchasing. So the need to share would have been real for doctors and hospitals. We would have a different ecosystem of tools. Um, so I may, I may throw you off. I may throw you off here then, because I think that's really interesting. So was there, do you think that there was an assumption that if we build it, they will come, that data will come, that the, the, that the, yes. the practices were in place um, and they didn't, was there not a realization that, and I don't, not that anybody would realize it, was there not a realization that there had been decades of operational procedures and practices that were institutionalized inside of humans <laughs> that, that, that they thought would be easy to make that transformation really quickly and we'll have the sharing of data, it'll be super simple and people just start doing things differently. So yeah, I think that part of what, when I look at EHR implementations that went wrong, it was, it's usually dropping new technology on top of existing processes and not also doing your process redesign. But if you're still getting paid in fee for service, why do you do process redesign? You're getting paid the same way you've always been paid. You're not being paid to look at outcomes. You're not being paid to look at holistic data. Um, I, I wanna say in defense of the people who wrote the High Tech Act, some of whom are friends and colleagues, it felt like a huge lift. So it's easy sometimes to look at something and say, boy, if we had just done this additional thing here and this additional thing here. But I think that they were expecting the payment reform to move faster than it did because mm -hmm. that's really not what the Affordable Care Act did. It did a lot of right. great things. And I think the ACOs, you know, the accountable care organizations and some other things are going to be our beacons of hope about how to, to address some of that stuff. But we shoved these tools in, but we didn't change anything else. And, yeah, so, and, and so that created a, a muddle instead of a clear picture about what should have been done. Our, yeah. We asked for developers to write code to pass the certification test, not to write code to support new purchasing models. That's interesting. So we still had a lot of practices within the um, mid-level management and executive level where there was a lot of transformation that that needed to follow. It wasn't just an investment. So what ended up happening was just a kind of a flat investment in a system that was supposed to kind of. So I have two two points to that that are interesting and that that translates. So one of them is anecdotal. I mean, I was at the hospital at a hospital at a health system that had done that initial uh, uh, review of whether to make this EMR investment. They were kind of moving towards it and then backed away from it. But then high tech passed and then they ran towards it. But the problem was, is that they were running towards it as everyone was running towards it. Was that legislation written maybe too well, or maybe was it too well funded to where it created that influx of demand and those, those vendors weren't ready for that full onslaught? 
you know, I think I think there's some of that kind of the overnightness and all of a sudden everybody was in the EMR business. I used to joke that I was waiting for Smucker's Jam and the Shiner Brewery to put their EHR products on the market. <laughs> um, we are in desperate. I would, to be fair, I would have Shiner EMR. I would, I would do that. Same. Shiner same. EMR sounds good. Uh, you know, we have relative consolidation in the hospital market, some dominance of some major players. But in the meantime, uh, everybody sort of went at the ambulatory market with slight variations or specialty society product or, or whatever. And um, I don't know that everybody really saw that many entrepreneurs stepping into the space. And I'm all for entrepreneurship. But now we have six or 700 certified products still in that market, 20 Vendors have 80% of the market, though. So the good news is when you want to drive change, once you cover those 20 vendors, you've got most of your providers, and then you've kind of got to get down to those more specialized products. I just think there could have been a more expansive ecosystem vision that would have helped. I think doctors in particular felt very imposed upon for no benefit to them. And that was really unfortunate. I can't tell you how many calls I was on um, in the early days. And Lance, this is going, are you ready? It's going to make you laugh. Physicians would say to me, but Nora, when Mitt Romney's elected president, he will repeal the Affordable Care Act and I won't have to have an EHR anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, let me deconstruct that for you on a diagram. All the things wrong with that sentence. So I think there were providers who thought they could write it out. And then it was going to go away. And I will say the current administration has done a bang up job on a lot of 21st century cures implementation in this space, putting their foot down and saying, you're going to use these tools. You're going to use them to share data. You're going to use them to show improvements. Some of the interoperability mandate. Some of the interoperability, real interoperability. And that technology has gotten better. Uh, the fast healthcare inter interoperability resources, the fire development, um, the work around APIs. Right. So I mean, the programming interface is to say to, to health plans and providers, you got to give patients their data and you can't make them wait three weeks and have to fill out a form. If it's sitting in your EHR, that era is over. You have to give them their data. And there are some real challenges with how you implement that, uh, particularly around things like physician notes. Got to figure out how to do free text as opposed to structured sharing. Um, I just. You know, looking back on it, I think a lot of well-intentioned thoughts were tied to healthcare reform, which everybody thought was sort of coming. And it healthcare reform emphasized coverage, mm -hmm. which was the goal, stated goal, but didn't really get down into value the way I would have hoped. Yeah. And so that left that was sort of the air support for the army that was missing. The army had its marching orders, get everybody digital. But what should have also been flying overhead was that real move. And I mean, real value-based purchasing, like shared risk, not just bonuses for being good. Well, and that leads then to the, the bigger point. And I think the, the main thing that we want to talk to you about, and that is the role of advocacy in, in technology and healthcare tech. Um, and how important is it now um, than ever? Because to your point, I mean, the reason we have um, so many problems in the political sphere around healthcare is because we've allowed, I think a lot of healthcare leaders have allowed the conversation uh, around what's needed in healthcare 
politically to be around, you're either for Obamacare or you're against it. So of course there wasn't a time to discuss the fact that a Republican plan originally around healthcare reform also included many of the elements that were in Obamacare, such as reducing readmissions and some cost containment initiatives like that, but we can't even have that conversation. So the point is, is that there wasn't a collaborative environment to assess these kinds of things and to assess how best to do this because politically, we've all allowed ourselves to devolve into this plus or minus four against Obamacare conversation. So what is the role of someone, not just like you, but people that are in your membership to go out there and engage legislators and you know, they're always going to have you to be able to really shake the tree and say they really get into the really nuts and bolts details of what a legislative staff needs to understand. But what is the role of like your members to, to make clear right now the opportunities that exist in the, the health uh, tech space and, and what's needed? So one of the great blessings of the pandemic is it solved our chicken and the egg problem that we frequently have with legislators. Let me do this telemedicine thing. Well, show me data that it works. Here's some data. Oh no, that's from the VA. We want data from Medicaid. Okay, but you won't let me do it in Medicaid. So I don't have any Medicaid data. Oh, I've got data from California Medicaid. Nope, that's not good enough. That's California Medicaid. So in this space of innovation, we chase our tail a lot that way. Um, the legislature, I think, sometimes has better instincts than we give them credit for in terms of seeing some of these models and saying, well, this could be really good to help uh, improve access to services or keep rural hospitals open. You sort of have to give them that 10 second tagline of, if I make this change, what good does it do? So mm -hmm. I think we've been successful with that. Where what I get from my membership, the two things I think are most valuable, number one, they bring me the obstacles that their clients and customers are having. Like we really want to expand this rural hospital trauma model, but our hospital won't get to stay in the trauma system if we do. So in uh, 2019, we changed the law to make sure telemedicine could count for rural hospitals towards their trauma status, which means they stay in the trauma system. It means money. Frankly, it means revenue that stays at the hospital and the hospitals that have adopted those rural trauma models are healthier hospitals for having done so. And so we were able to sort of get the vision of that communicated to the legislature in a positive way. And it came from the people on the ground bringing the solutions up to me to, to talk about. And then the second thing is our capacity, I think, to do um, data analytics. Uh, and a great example of that, Accenture and I, in the fall, we did a survey for the Dallas-Worth Hospital Council on telemedicine adoption. So we inadvertently had pre-COVID benchmark data. No, not on purpose. We didn't know. And then we redid that survey in March and uh, April and got some really great data. And that data ended up being quoted in one of Governor Abbott's press releases mm -hmm. related to the Texas Department of Insurance continuing voluntarily with the plans to cover certain telemedicine services even after their emergency rule ended. So the engine of innovation is a little bit of forgiveness, not permission. Yeah. And it's a little bit of having a lot of people who understand because they have to prove it to their customers and their bosses that we have to have data to back up the intuitiveness of some of these changes. And it's that combination, I think, 
uh, that lets me be able to do my job with some confidence that when I bring forward an idea or an innovation, it's been vetted by people way smarter than me about it. And I've pounded on them with questions so that I can have confidence that what I'm bringing forward to the legislature has got some, some heft behind it. Um, yeah. And it's not also, because we're a trade association, we're bringing forward things that are uh, marketplace things and not specific vendor things. I think one of the great anxieties that the legislature has is inadvertently passing a vendor bill mm -hmm. for, for not knowing and not understanding. So a lot of the initial questions that we got when we started was, oh, thank goodness we have someone to call. We have this bill. Is this a vendor bill? We don't really know. And sometimes bills brought forward from individual vendors are fabulous. And we'll look at it and we'll be like, holy cow, we got 30 companies that could compete for that. And we're yeah. all in. So I, I, I get frustrated. I'm protective of my people. It's sort of the anti-vendor sentiment. But that's the reason we have an association is to put some structure and protection around that. So when we do bring something forward, it's been vetted. Is, is healthcare more vulnerable to that than other industries? Because I, I've seen it done on, on credentialing, for example. I mean, in 2013, there was a vendor bill that snuck in the back door on, on credentialing. It was never put into place because I think the complexity that the, the, the regulators ended up finding. But I mean, is healthcare more vulnerable to vendor based uh, vendor bills as you, as, as you kind of as they're called? I think technology can be vulnerable because of a couple things. I think. Um, Legislators can get very enamored of an idea and really like, I'm going to be the champion of the innovation of the thing and never underestimate a single legislator's obsession with an idea. Um, it can get a lot of legs or it can sneak its way, you know, into something else. And I've seen it time and time again. Um, I think everybody wants to be perceived as modern and technology forward looking. And so I think that maybe creates some vulnerability. I would also say that healthcare uh, is complicated. Yeah. It's more complex and it's its own language. And the legislators that study it and take it seriously, I think their radar is pretty good. But I think sometimes you, you can have a situation where somebody's super well-intentioned picks up a bill without, I mean, I'm sometimes the bearer of not very nice news when I have yeah. to go into a staffer and say, um, we've got concerns and this is why, these are the specifics of the why we have a problem with this legislation. And, and sometimes I get too bad. My boss really thinks it's a great idea and they're going to go forward with it. And I say, okay, well, we're going to. Well, and so I think that that's even there more you are. Im important on the advocacy front. And, and as you say, like some, because some of these legislators who have have been, and I know that we're talking a lot about just Texas and we're a national podcast, but I think that it is a little bit of a microcosm in some cases of the way some, some states all are going to work the same. But you've got a, a legislator who's a committee of a health and human services uh, committee, and they've got an expertise in a certain area. I remember at the beginning of COVID, we're probably a month or two in, and, and there is a, um, uh, a rally going on uh, in the Dallas area, and it was a physician who was protesting the idea of telemedicine being okay. Um, and, and so everybody is posting this physician's uh, statement about she needs to be able to lay hands on a patient to understand exactly what it is that they're dealing with. They saw these people out there on in the social media space they see a white coat out there making an advocacy statement 
that apply in their in their mind. It's a physician that applies across the board. What they don't understand is that that's a family practice physician. That is a primary right. care physician right. that's going to be much different than any kind of services that might be provided. So it would make a legislator potentially vulnerable to taking away reimbursements that are really important or re deprioritizing reimbursements for an inpatient setting on something that gets a rural hospital access to a physician they wouldn't otherwise have. But they're applying telemedicine across the board and not discerning between telemedicine, telehealth, B2C, things like that. So, so two points there, and your last point's one of my favorites. I think there's been um, a huge emphasis on direct-to-consumer telemedicine, and it's an incredible component of our portfolio, but it's not the only component of telemedicine, and I'm hoping that COVID has really driven that home from the drive-through testing to treating vulnerable patients at home from, from hospital-based settings. There's an enormous amount of innovation that is not direct-to-consumer, and both are incredibly important. The other thing I'll say, though, to your white coat example, um, and I call this my, my secret recipe, but it's not a secret because all you got to do is go look at our bills. We get physician sponsors for our health tech bills. Our telemedicine bills have had physician sponsors and authors, particularly in the Senate, every session. Every major bill I have passed has had at least one physician, if not two, as author and sponsor because they do speak with authority with that white coat on. But when I sit them down, and I'll tell one just tiny little anecdote, we passed an interoperability mandate in 2015 to try to improve public health reporting. And that's a long, slow process, and we're not where I'd like us to be, but the legislative framework to get rid of fax machines, which I would like to ban yeah. um, by statute, uh, <laughs> we, put it, we put it in place five years ago. And as we really started to move into leveraging those electronic medical records for public health reporting for Texas, I sent my uh, bill author and bill sponsor, so Dr. John Zarwas, who's now at UT System, Dr. Charles Schwartner, who's still in the Senate, reached out to them and I was like, by the way, thank you for taking a chance on this in 2015 when people thought we were filing a health insurance exchange bill mm -hmm. and gave us grief and got confused because they were practicing doctors. They understood what I was asking them. And that was a grassroots driven bill that had come from my membership that we had put together. And that's um, a great example of, I think yes. that everybody defaulting to a, yes. as you said, this isn't a health insurance exchange. This isn't a pro Obamacare thing. So take it easy. This is actually, so if, if people could separate themselves out for a moment, they could see that their value system actually does align with what you're trying to accomplish by making that, that healthcare, health, health data more inter interoperable, more accessible, and therefore more efficient and, and helps these businesses operate. And I want to say we can also protect privacy by design. We can build privacy into the products. I, I, there are people who believe that the way the data is fragmented in the system, that it's a feature, that that's good, that the fragmentation is good because it protects privacy and nothing can be further from the truth. We need accountability and rules about who sees what data when, but not sharing is not the answer. It's an easy, lazy answer. It's not the answer. I see. Uh, well, let's let's talk about that privacy issue because I think that right now, I think that over the next six to 12 months, we're going to have cybersecurity and healthcare, um, cybersecurity in healthcare take center stage. 
strangely, I think probably because of the noise that's around the election, there's not a lot of attention that's, there's not as much news around the UHS uh, uh, vulnerability or, or the, the, the cyber, uh, the cyber threat that occurred at, at the UHS. Um, but it, it's bound to happen to uh, a lot more. It's happened to many others. There's not a lot of people that know that in their own communities, even right here in Texas, we've had a couple of um, cyber thefts of uh, patient data that were then held ransom. Um, uh-huh. uh, and, and you're gonna end up with CFOs in the back of head shops trying to get cyber, uh, <laughs> cyber coins uh, to pay off these guys. Um, I guess, do legislators right now understand um, where this vulnerability comes from and, and who's responsible and, um, or, or is this just a, are they going to see this as irresponsibility on the part of providers and vendors? Sure. Uh, that's a great question. <clears throat> a couple things, I think. I, I do think the legislators that work on this issue closely understand a couple things. First of all, the the threats are organized, funded threats. These are not kids sitting in their basement thinking it would be fun to break into a hospital's electronic records. These are people who want Bitcoin Mm -hmm. for the the advantages. Bitcoin, my libertarian side is into cryptocurrency. My cybersecurity side is not because it has created an avenue for the ransom payments Mm -hmm. that um, we didn't even have a crime on the books in Texas for ransomware until either 2017 or 2019. We we didn't have it in our statutes. Yeah, so I mean, if somebody, even though somebody's going to ultimately be threatening somebody's life with this, they're going to be prosecuted under cybercrime law. Now there would be, because your point, do you think that there is a willingness or is there an avenue to be able to, to prosecute these these uh, crimes as RICO, under RICO statutes, RICO criminal law? You know, I think it's hard to bring a RICO statute against foreign actors. I think that's that's difficult, mm-hmm. but but that's the right framework. This, this is organized criminal behavior. I think that's clearer than it used to be. Um, so I think that's the first piece. I think the second piece is we, we really have to have an emphasis on having a culture across the board on cybersecurity. Um, and that you're talking about things like password hygiene, password hygiene, multi-factor authentication, um, our prescription drug monitoring database is a great example. I cannot tell you how much grumping there has been over the years and it's valid about, oh, I still want to do a paper prescription pad for controlled substances. I don't want to e-prescribe it because I have to do two-step authentication and nor I hate you because I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's nice. But there's a reason you have to do it. There's a reason that has to be secure. There's a reason the DEA has those rules. And now in Texas, we have our integrated uh, prescription monitoring database that feeds directly into most electronic medical records. I think we've integrated 82% of prescribers and 88% of pharmacies. We've got great numbers on that. And now that it's in the doctor's workflow, they can just do it. They've stopped complaining. But when we add steps, in cybersecurity to the workflow, it's sort of back to dropping the EHR on the old workflow. Cybersecurity, it's the same thing. You've got to make it feel organic to the practice and the work that the doctor's doing instead of this alien additional set of steps. 
that that's a lot harder when you do that. When we integrate it, it makes it easier. But yeah, I I, I got their frustration because they told me loud and clear, but that doesn't change the priority of we have to keep that information safe and paper is not safe and patients steal paper and criminals steal paper. And unless you dust it for fingerprints, you don't really know what happened to it. So yeah, it's not been an easy, I'm going to defend the providers that I complain about all the time for a moment. None of this has been easy. The last decade has been the biggest series of seismic shifts and shocks to the healthcare system in American history. And the instability is felt by every single actor in the system. But we have to choose. Are we going to choose to be diligent? Are we going to choose to have good practices? Are we going to choose to patch our server the day the patch comes out? Yeah. Because yeah. bad guys also get the emails from Microsoft. So please patch your server. Mm-hmm. Um, just as an example, I use a password manager and a random password generator. It does create extra work for me. Absolutely. I don't know any of my passwords off the top of my head. But am it's I not, It's not Nora1234? It, it is not. Oh, it, is, okay. it is not even Nora passes bills exclamation mark. It's none I'll of those trying. things. I'll stop trying that then. But sorry. Um, because how, for one thing, how I, I feel like I have to practice what I preach. And if I'm going to be getting that kind of shaking my finger at people, I've got to have due diligence. Absolutely. Sometimes it's inconvenient. But we have a culture of convenience in this country that should not be translated into certain aspects of healthcare, and cybersecurity is one of them. Um, everybody might have to be a little inconvenienced to keep everybody's records safe and protected. And I, I, we have to be okay with that. And I think, again, the legislative leadership in Texas that works on these issues understands it. Do people understand it in the broader sense? And do most people grow and roll their eyes and they don't want to go to training and they don't want to go to class? Uh, they don't. But then when they open the phishing email that was a test from their IT department, that's because yeah. they didn't pay attention. So we have to be diligent. And it's exhausting. Yeah. Eternal I know that they're exhausting. I know there are a lot of hospitals that have done some phishing testing programs to make sure that they've, they've set up false ones just to, to test and make sure that it's, and they're coming up with huge percentages of people even after they receive the education that are are still clicking in uh, to those phishing scams. And, and so I think everybody's vulnerable, but again, I don't think that people really realize fully just what that does on that, the healthcare side of it. So that, that kind of leads me to the, the next point and that, and it, it goes beyond cyber, but it's the real opportunity, I think, in, in the innovation aspect of what the EMRs bring is there, there's more than a cottage industry developing now that we're, I would say we're about five years into kind of EMR maturation, um, where the EMRs now have kind of a more stable footing. Um, uh, they've got full systems in place, and now you have a little bit of a an orbit um, or a, a halo of um, services companies that are coming in to develop um, uh, solutions on top of the EMR. And I think that's really where that can be exciting for what can happen for physicians, where now physicians aren't just only inputting data. Now they're actually being able to use the data that's in that, that system. And I, I won't name any of those companies, but for some of them that can scrape a screen and put data up in front of a physician that's valuable. How much of that are we going to see over the next five years? And, and are we going to create, do you see the 
potential for kind of an acquisition community developing as the EMRs then start to pick and choose which ones they're going to acquire and, and purchase their, their technology and bring it in-house? Yeah, I think it's, it's, the, it's the app store. Mm-hmm. I think we're getting closer to, when I talk to physicians, they tell me they want something easy to use, cheap to free, and totally customizable. Well, you cannot have all of those things. I'm sorry. That's not how it works. Right. But you can have easy to use and totally customizable at, at maybe a lower price point than we thought because the technology for exchange has improved so much. It could it can't it is spawning this entire ecosystem of build-ons and add-ons that will integrate with these EHR tools, not only to help providers with analytics and managing their patient populations, but Every major EHR vendor has a telemedicine partner now or has built a telemedicine platform. So the telemedicine visit of the future may very well be logging onto your patient portal and clicking a button and chatting with your doctor with your EHR data right there, your lab results or your images or whatever needs to be viewed. So integration of the tools now that the footprint has stabilized, and I do think it's, it's relatively stable enormous innovation, not just to support providers, but also we are about to enter the golden era of the home as a site of service for all sorts of patient services, including ones that would traditionally only be in a clinic or only at a hospital, because we still have vulnerable people we have to keep safe. Mm -hmm. And even when the official pandemic ends, um, there's no reason to force a child who's just had a liver transplant to get in a car and go into a hospital to have a 15 minute chat with their doctor. And if you can monitor that child with smart technology that feeds to the doctor constantly, we should be doing that as well. It populates the EHR with what the doctor needs to know about that child. Those are real things happening really now Mm -hmm. that are upending our tradition of you have to go there. You have to go to the office, to the doctor, to the place. Do you think that that's accelerated, especially because of COVID, not necessarily among the patients or even the uh, the payers, but among the physician providers themselves and even the ones who are kind of going to be late slash never adopters that they've now been kind of had these technologies that they were avoiding foisted on them. And they're like, oh, it's not so bad after all. Do you think that there's a little bit of a, We've, we've been able to make that acceptance more, more rapid? Absolutely. I think necessity is the mother of invention and the pandemic forced everybody to do things that, that maybe they even swore they were never going to do. And what they found out is it's not so bad. And it actually has some upsides. And it's changing some conversations um, that we've traditionally had just as an example, one of the most frequent questions I get is about, oh, interstate licensor, we've got to make it easy for doctors to practice in all 50 states. Well, actually, we really, we should, because there's case use cases for that. But if all the doctors in your area offer telemedicine, then patients have options. So yeah. that becomes, it becomes important in certain use cases, um, incredibly important, in fact, in certain use cases, but it also kind of takes away this idea that the only help is going to come from outside your state mm-hmm. if all of your doctors have adopted. And right. what the Texas Medical Association did a survey earlier this year that reported that 80% of their doctors have adopted and plan to continue. Yeah. 
uh, now, offering these services after the pandemic's over. I would have never dreamed that statistic in my wildest dreams. That's fabulous yeah. for patients. Well, and especially since prior to 2019, TMA was really ambivalent about any messaging that even remotely sounded like it would support telemedicine moves. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if you had like a handful of retirements that occurred or some funerals, and all of a sudden they put messaging together that it was more indicative of support for that. I, so, I mean, things things transition, things change, things evolve. Do you see the payment um, following, the reimbursements following um, for tele, tele, telehealth, telemedicine? I do. Uh, even? I do. I think I think the data is going to help us get rid of the this is just increased utilization with no benefit argument that I hear sometimes that, oh, well, we increase access, the costs go up, but it doesn't do us any good. Um, I also think it's going to become a competitive issue. Uh, consumers, now that they know they have this option, are not going to take kindly to it being taken away. If you are a person that works for 15 or $16 an hour, and your choices are having to miss two hours of work to drive across town or a 15-minute video visit, which one do you think they're going to pick? Right. So it, yeah. it and, and the upending is, is good because the practices of the future are going to be hybrid practices. You're mm -hmm. still, and this is the flip side. Anyone who tells you we can be 100% virtual all the time for anything, I would be very suspect of that. The standard of care does not allow everything to be done virtually. Mm -hmm at least not from a home setting. But it's going to evolve that. This going to evolve that family practice provider. They're going to have to look at different ways to operate more efficiently or with less office staff or with remote office staff that's combined and shared services with another clinic or something like that. Something like that. Or there was a clinic in Austin that was a super adopter of EHR early. And I asked their medical director once, why are you so enthusiastic when everyone else is yelling at me? And he said, Nora, I don't have a file room anymore. Yeah. And I've yeah. doubled my office space and I've got two new physicians in what used to be the giant file room. So why wouldn't I do that? And I was like, oh, well, okay. Yeah. That's, that's a fair point. So it is a reconfiguration of the way we do services and shared services and what we think about. Uh, just one more example. Um, the other thing I hate besides fax machines is the clipboard. Mm -hmm. You go in, they hand you a stank of blank forms even though they've got your medical record, you refill out the blank forms with the right. information that's sitting in the file folder. I'm finally around my personal care starting to see not little leaps, but huge leaps to please verify is all of this still the same? Even uh, some touchless check-in at kiosks sure, where sure, there's no right. paper. Joy to the yeah. world. Let's We've talked about a couple of, of those here on this, yeah. So, well, and, and uh, even like, you know, I see how much a lot of that I see being driven. Um, and again, I'm, I've never been a person to talk highly of, of health plans because I like watching, looking at the history of the S&P in comparison to their stock price. Won't go into that in any more detail. But, um, but a lot of them are figuring out from disruptors like Oscar Health that, hey, we can reduce a lot of this paperwork. We're going to keep it all right here. I mean, in my, my app on my phone, I've got a ton of of, of my patient data, if that can just hook into my physician now, there's no need for all of that. That's better on their end as well, but that's basically the efficiency you're talking about. Well, and I think, I mean, the Institute of Medicine says we waste what, one in $4 that we spend in the healthcare system. Imagine how much more care we could have 
if we tighten that up even a fraction mm -hmm. yeah. and efficiency is is the way to do it people are expecting these digital experiences in every other aspect of their life and that includes our medicaid clients we have really good survey data about they may not have the greatest cell phone in the world and they might be on a track phone plan but their cell phone acts as their computer and there's an awful lot we can do with just a cell phone to bring care to people that we can't currently do in traditional settings. And we've got to think about broadband. There's, there's a lot of variables that we have to take on, but, but none of that is an excuse for fax machines and clipboards yeah. and dropping new tech on top of manual processes and then coming back to me and saying, well, it didn't work. Yeah. Well, of course it didn't work. You didn't re-engineer the way you did your business. And yeah, I think right. that's an area for growth also is people who can come in and fine tune the, the workflows of these practices so that they accommodate needing to be a hybrid model in a way that's really efficient. The people who do that, I think are gonna do very well over the next decade. Well, we talk about that too, that the word innovation is often seen as needing to come from people that you represent, your clients. I mean, we on our last podcast, we talked about how the innovation usually comes with somebody who uses some discovery that one of your, your members made. Um, and so, like I said, it, it comes in the operation, operational side of it and the way these tools are being used more than it is the actual tool itself that's the innovation. But I think that that's a really good point. And what I think what we would like, I'd like to do is to have, have, have you back to talk again about some of those things. Cause I mean, peer review technology is, is a, is an area where there's tons of opportunities that exist in this, this space for sure. But what are some of the things that you see out there on the horizon that's going to be getting attention from, um, from folks that, uh, that, that I think maybe is not in the everyday trending uh, list. Sure. Um, a couple things. Uh, nobody talks about long-term care. It's a huge component of the spend. I refuse to believe that the baby boomers are going to hit that system and say, oh yeah, this is all fine. It's good. We're just going to go in these buildings <laughs> and stay there. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. So I have been encouraging entrepreneurs to not forget about the long-term care system and about aging at home and about the need to support healthy aging mm -hmm. and because such a huge chunk of our spend is long-term care. And as you well know, those last 30, 60, 90 days of life, we need to, to, be, to be figuring that out better and giving people better choices. Um, there are people who need institutional care and we should make those institutions better, but there's a lot technology can do there. So that's a conversation I wish people were having more. I think that's a big piece of it. I would also say that part of the lessons out of COVID is some, some things I, in my wildest dreams, never would have thought of. Like uh, we have music therapy as a Medicaid benefit for certain persons with disabilities. And they've moved that to a completely virtual model. Safer for the client, safer for the therapist. Outcomes are just as good, if not better we need to make sure we don't fall back into well that was fine and the pandemic's over and we're going to go back to the way it used to be with some of these things that are truly truly innovative because there are going to be vulnerable populations that we still force to come to care mm -hmm. so there's got to be a rethinking of that system 
and people come to care when they really need to come to care and we need to think about getting care to come to them. I just think that innovation is happening all over the place. There's about to be, uh, you know, big efforts around um, how do we use technology in dental care. That's a huge issue across the country that legislators are grappling with and we're going to take on here in Texas this cycle. Um, optometry is another one. Uh, just there's not going to be, let me stop with this. People used to say, oh, that telemedicine thing, that's Nora's thing. That's that project over there. She cares about it. Like five other people care about it. Health IT, ah, that's that thing. Didn't she get a grant for that? Like, eh, it's that thing over there. Yeah. Welcome to my world. You all live in it now. Welcome. Nice to have you. This is a way of life. And, and this yeah. change is a permanent change. And you can have a good attitude about it or you can have a bad attitude about it, but that attitude is very much gonna drive the outcomes for your organization. Do you have governance and leadership that embraces it? Well, that's and I think that thing. that's a really good way to look at it. And, and, and those, you know, I, I think we're at a place where there's rapid, there's a rapid succession in, in retirements and leadership that's happening industry-wide. And um, so now is that opportunity to start prioritizing new, uh, operations and processes to, to, to take that on and make those priorities. So um, it is going to be exciting over the, the next several years. And so uh, so I really appreciate you digging in on some of this today. You're fascinating. Uh, you're a fascinating person. And again, as I said, infectious and and fun uh, to, to talk with because um, it, it basically uh, you're, you're just maybe as bad as I am about being able to talk about anything. So um we actually probably have more re relevance. Yeah, for sure. So I appreciate it. We're going to do this again soon. Nora, thanks so much. Lance, thank you so much for having me. I will do this every single time you ask me. All you have to do is call or text or email. No facts. That's awesome. Great. Thank you.